0: As a Black woman and dean of a law school, the first dean of color at Boston University School of Law, I struggled with what message I should send to my students. I even wondered if I could send a message about the deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Tony McDade, imagining the backlash when certain words came out of my Black mouth.
1: The Trump administration... Under Attorney General Sessions, and Barr have abdicated the Justice Department's responsibility in supporting and ensuring constitutional policing in communities in this country.
2: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law, and yes, that thing we call the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, I cover those things for the magazine and it has been a deeply painful week in America with grief and horror at the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of the police and other killings uh, around the country of Black people by police officers. It's resulted in protests and curfews and arrests and attacks on the press. It's also been a really busy week for lawyers, what with having to read up on quartering soldiers and posse comitatus and the Insurrection Act and no quarter orders and generalized presidential claims that protesters are all hooligans and looters who must be dominated if necessary by using military force domestically. On Monday afternoon, Donald Trump conscripted federal security forces to clear peaceful protesters from Lafayette Square so that he and his senior advisors could walk undisturbed from the White House to stand in front of St. John's Church and wave a Bible aloft. That action has led to yet more protesters who are protesting abusive law enforcement, ironically, in response to protests about abusive law enforcement, it's also led to a lot of important conversations about racism and justice and persistent and invidious racism, police reform, the role of the Justice Department and the law in either inflaming or addressing these problems. Later on in the show, Slate Plus listeners are going to have a chance to catch up with our own Mark Joseph Stern about some action. That took place at the U.S. Supreme Court last week, including a midnight decision in a case brought by churches who objected to state lockdown orders. We're also going to talk to Vanita Gupta, who served in the Justice Department as head of the Civil Rights Division from 2014 to 2017 and focused a lot of her energy there on racialized policing. But before we do any of that, and by way of preface uh, as the precursor and maybe guiding principle of today's conversations, I wanted to check in with Angela Nwachi-Willig. She is the dean and professor of law at Boston University School of Law. She's a renowned legal scholar. She's an expert in critical race theory, employment discrimination, and family law. And some of you may remember her from our live show in Austin in 2018. Well, earlier this week, she posted a really remarkable open letter to her students talking about this moment in America and how she feels. And it seemed really important to talk about that with her. So Angela, welcome back to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me back here.
2: So, so your letter is called The Fire This Time. It's posted on the BU website. We'll post it with our show notes as well. And I wondered if maybe you would start by reading some of it for our listeners.
0: Sure. Um, so I am the mother of two black sons and one black daughter. I fear for their lives whenever they step outside. As a mother of black children, I both envy and resent the freedom with which mothers of white children parent. They never have to balance that delicate line between teaching their children how to ensure their survival after a police stop and crushing their spirit while doing so because the very lesson derives from another that black lives are not valued in our society. Like so many black people in this country, I see my family and myself in George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Brianna Taylor because I know, just like they do, that our loved ones, and even I, could be next. And these feelings are exploding in what is already a difficult time. As a Black woman and dean of a law school, the first dean of color at Boston University School of Law, I struggled with what message I should send to my students. I even wondered if I could send a message about the deaths of Rihanna Taylor, Ahmad Arbery, George Floyd and Tony McDade, imagining the backlash when certain words came out of my Black mouth. I listened to friends and spoke with other Black woman deans who felt equally silenced, all of us still cautioning each other against speaking out through a public message. All of us knew we could and would act more freely were we not Black. Perhaps surprising to some of you, racism regularly disempowers the seemingly powerful dean. And yet, if we feel powerless, imagine what it feels like for those not so economically or professionally privileged. But for me, once I thought specifically about what my law school self would have wanted, actually needed to hear in this time, I knew not only that I had to write, but also what I must write. After telling his nephew that the boy's father, Baldwin's brother, was defeated long before he died, Because at the bottom of his heart, he really believed what white people said about him. Baldwin shared two sentences that I will share with you, my students, with one omission. The message goes, you can only be destroyed by believing that you really are what the white world calls you. I tell you this because I love you. And please don't ever forget that.
2: I've read your letter so many times this week. One of the things that really struck me, first of all, is that I'm the mother of two teenage boys who swan around Crown Heights in Brooklyn, who swan around Manhattan as though they own the place. And um, I, I guess I have just really recalled in reading what you're saying that the conversations I have had with them are utterly different from the conversations that you have with your kids. And, and more pointedly, Angela, I guess I am really struck by the silences and, you know, you flag our silences and you also flag your own silence and how hard you had to struggle to even write this. And you are the dean of this unbelievably prestigious law school. And as you note, your students you know, think you are God, that you have limitless, unbounded authority to say and do what you want. And I wondered if you could just maybe reflect for a minute on that struggle to not be silent and to speak knowing that there could be repercussions. What What was the thinking around that? And how do you feel now that you said what you needed to say?
0: There were a million things going through my mind. Part of it is, as the dean of the law school, I represent everyone in the law school when I represent the institution. And that's a body of people who have a wide variety of views. Um, And even as I look at the George Floyd... what I perceive as the murder of George Floyd on tape and see no other way to view that (laughs) tape, that there might be other people in my um, community, my larger community, including my alumni community, that would look at that tape and see it differently. So I'm expected to resist those kinds of broader statements. And then there's also the sort of the myth that we tell ourselves in law that we're supposed to be these completely neutral beings uh, and that the law itself is completely neutral without recognizing the actors that wrote the laws, that created it, without recognizing who was left out of the creation of those laws, without recognizing how precedent reifies the exclusion of certain voices from the creation of case law and how it reifies the continued exclusion of particular perspectives because of people viewing their experiences as normative, right? And not being aware simply of what does it mean? What's my, what's my experience with experience of other African-Americans? What's the experience of poor people? What's the experience of a wide variety of people who are usually voiceless in our society? Uh, and so just really struggling with that. And yet just thinking about all those who, um, including my own students, who are feeling voiceless, who were, I think, probably asking themselves the same question that I was asking is, what's the point of my being in this position if I can't speak? Um, and, and ultimately that was what um, pushed me to speak. You know, What's the point of my being in this position and being a black woman and having people laud it if I'm gonna be silent in the same way that perhaps a white man would be silent in this position? Uh, and it didn't make sense. And, um, whatever the repercussions were, I was, I was fully, um, fully open to them. I would be fine with them, actually welcome them. So, uh, it was more important to speak and it was more important to acknowledge, uh, and to, um, to also to let people know, not only that this is something that affected all African Americans, it was something that affected all people, um, that this was something that they should be upset about. And that it happens all the time. Um, and and I guess one thing I want to say is I think one of the things that you worry about when you're in these positions is that you get used as a as sort of an example of why racism doesn't exist anymore. You see, we have a black dean, uh, you know, it's things aren't as bad as they used to be, you know, there's no more racism, or there's a lot less racism. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be used in that way either. I didn't want, whether whether it was conscious or not. Um, and so I felt like that was also a really important reason to speak. And I'm not sure if I'm explaining myself well, but it was all all these things were going through my mind. Uh, and so it just felt for all those reasons, it was important to not be silent. It's important to speak for my students and particularly my Black students who I knew were in a lot of pain. It was an important to speak um, so that people um, who were not aware that people in my position were feeling the way I was feeling, knew how I was feeling, that people knew that I feared for my own children. People know that people with my education and my standing in my in my now class background um, are also suffer harassment from the police. All those things are really important for everyone to understand. So.
2: The other thing that really struck me, there's so many things that struck me about your letter one of the things that really struck me, Angela, was the intimacy of it, that you talked about your kids and you talked about your fear. And, my God, I think I went through three years of law school without ever hearing anybody talk, certainly about their children. Certainly, I never heard a wom- woman person on the faculty talk intimately about being a mother, Um It's one of the things I think I hated about law school is this oracular, you know, uh, Langdellian world of professors are perfect and their brains in vats. And I think that's also a form of vulnerability for, again, for a woman, for a black woman to be really human in a law school context that thrives on a kind of frosty notion that the law is what it is, and we are just its careful, personless stewards. And I wondered what that vulnerability on your part, what you wanted to hear back and what you have heard back. Have people been vulnerable to you in responding to this?
0: My first and foremost hope was that I was hoping that my um, uh, my my students of color would feel seen, that they would feel like— someone acknowledge and recognize their experience. Um that students who were angry would feel like someone said what um what they were thinking and that people who wanted to be pushed to look inward felt like they were pushed to look inward. And I've I've gotten nothing but a really, really positive um a reception, I think you know, when you say this too, I mean, one of the things that people like to say in law school is that one of the things that you'll learn thinking like a lawyer is, you know, you won't say, I feel anymore. It'll be only about what you think, you know? And one of the things that one of the students responded was that it was refreshing to see someone talk about their feelings uh, and that that was important. To ha- have that, be reminded that that was part of being a lawyer. It's right. <laughs> it's having a feeling, and part of being an effective lawyer is, is having the ability to feel. Um, and I've gotten nothing but positive reception from I, students of color feeling seen, um, white students who are allies um, feeling seen and feeling good about being pushed to look inward. People um, appreciating the fact that I was willing to be vulnerable. I think it's always people appreciate when people who are in positions of power make themselves vulnerable as well. I, I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. But I mean, the, definitely the, the people I was um, wanted to be seen felt seen and, and they felt like that voice was given to what they were experiencing and thinking and feeling and believing. And so I was glad that I, I was, I'm really glad that I wrote that statement. And I could, I felt an immediate difference once that, once I sent the letter out to my students. Um, I was just feeling it was, it was just hanging over me. And as I was writing it and rewriting, rewriting, I was just felt awful, you know, just sick almost. And, uh, and, and once I sent it out, I felt better. Right. And, um, and so that was a lesson for me too right? About silence and the way in which silence can do harm to you. So uh, it was a good lesson for me as well.
2: I think that one of the themes, even in preparing this show, even in thinking about your letter, is imagination and failures of imagination. And I could never have imagined a law school dean modeling pain and compassion and suffering and modeling speaking into the void. And as you say, I think imagination and compassion and dignity, all those things that you write about are hived out of legal thinking because that's not how lawyers are supposed to think. And I, I'm i really struck by, I think I sent this to you this morning, this letter that the Washington Supreme Court published that I, 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 I shouldn't be surprised, but it was beyond anything I could have imagined. It's signed by... The entire Washington State Supreme Court, and again, we'll post it in the show notes, but this recognition as judges, the role we've played in devaluing black lives, talking about what the court has done with its precedent, talking about systemic inequality, lack of financial resources, uh, we must recognize that this is not how a justice system must operate. Too often in the legal profession, we feel bound by tradition the way things have always been. We must remember even the most venerable precedent must be struck down when it is incorrect and harmful. In my lifetime, maybe I am just so limited in imagination, Angela. I can't imagine courts acting to take responsibility like that, and I wonder if really that's all your letter was asking, is be in this conversation with me, those of you in the law who cannot imagine what it is that you have done. I mean, see a world separate from the world that is constructed in law school.
0: Yeah, I know it's, it's, uh, I mean, that letter is incredible. You know, it is powerful and it gives me hope in a way that, you know, was hard to imagine, even just a few days ago, right, um, that, you know, there's so many ways, and so many of us for so long have been talking about the ways in which law facilitates injustice, right? Um, uh, and for, to have a, a Supreme Court of a state basically acknowledge that and to say that there is work that has to be done by the court and courts to undo that is... Is really unbelievable, as you said, and and yeah, absolutely yes, that is part of what I was hoping to say. It's part of what I and so many people have been saying in our scholarship for so long, and uh, it's it's unbelievable. And I and I really hope. I mean, Massachusetts Supreme Court, um, Judicial Court also wrote uh, a very powerful letter too, and um, and if we can have more courts acknowledging that, and we see more um, changes in a case law, that could create real change. I hope that this results in, in, um, in real change. It's hard, you know, you don't want to almost uh, believe it because so often you think, well, maybe this will result in real change and then things go back to the same situation. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that this moment might be different.
2: I guess maybe I keep landing at the notion that the folks who are going to change it is your students who read it, who read what you wrote, your kids, my kids, and that things that look like letters <laughs> to us, uh, your letter, the letter from the Massachusetts court, from the Washington court, that actually is an agent of change if our kids read it and take it to heart. So, uh, I guess I just want to thank you so much for your time, for your work. I know you've I was just reading your your article on brown and and how it perpetuated white supremacy. I I think that we all have a lot of reading to do this weekend and I thank you for being with us and letting us be in this conversation with you.
0: Thank you for having the conversation. I agree with you. Uh these 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 protesters are are really phenomenal. And I've seen some real courage and real things in doing this protest that have, that have given me life uh, and um, that have shown me the, the, the possibilities for real, real structural change. So hopefully, I, I hope it happens.
2: Angela Nwachi Willig is Dean and Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. She is a renowned legal scholar, an expert in critical race theory, employment, discrimination, and family law. And she joined us to talk about the letter she wrote to her students. Take good care, Angela. Thank you for being with us.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you.
3: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Friends, if you are
2: not a Slate Plus member yet, I'm going to urge you to check it out. You can support Slate's vital coverage and our excellent writers and our podcasters who are working overtime with a Slate Plus membership. You'll get ad-free access to all of our shows and exclusive members-only content like what we now do in our SCOTUS rundown with Mark Joseph Stern. Uh, I know a whole bunch of you have joined this week because you emailed to tell me about it, and thank you. Please, if you can afford to, go to slate.com slash plus to find out more. And really, all of us at Slate, thank you for your support. We want to turn now to Vanita Gupta. She served in the Obama Justice Department as head of the Civil Rights Division. From 2014 till 2017, she focused on a lot of issues, including voting rights and also racialized policing. Vanita now serves as president and chief executive of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. That is a storied and amazing coalition that over the years has grown from an assembly of 30 civil and human rights organizations at its founding to more than 200 civil rights groups today. Vanita, one of the conversations I really wanted to have today of all days lies right at the intersection of all the work you do Thinking about justice, civil rights, and the police, and also thinking about the role of the Justice Department in both creating and solving for some of these problems. Welcome to the podcast. I am so thrilled to be
1: here, Dahlia. Thank you for inviting me to be on.
2: Can we maybe start? I think it's a sort of a wonky place to start, but can you just walk us through the Civil Rights Division? What it does, what you did there, what your priorities were in the time that you headed it up from 2014 to 2017 in the Obama era. Yeah.
1: When I was at the Justice Department, I came in uh, about two months after Michael Brown had been killed in Ferguson. And the Justice Department had just opened up a pattern and practice investigation into the Ferguson Police Department. And as you'll recall, the country was on the streets over the policing issues. Uh, Michael Brown was killed uh, just a month after Eric Garner had been killed in New York. And uh, police violence, the issues around race and justice and public safety were uh, occupying the nation at that time, and uh, the kind of ramifications and the, and the concerns about these issues were nationwide. Uh, and so I came in, and I was at the Justice Department heading up the Civil Rights Division for just under two and a half years, and I would say that the policing issues were the most central um, uh, kind of issues that I dealt with uh, at the Justice Department. Every week that I was there... It seemed that there was a video that was going viral of an act of police violence. Um, We were being called into uh, departments that were really um, had longstanding issues of uh, lack of trust, of systemic problems around use of force and discriminatory policing. So these were issues that I spent a lot of time working on during my time We were enforcing 15 consent decrees in police departments across the country. Uh, We had uh, opened investigations into the Baltimore PD, Chicago PD. Um, And so these issues were very, very much front of mind, not only for me as the head of the Civil Rights Division, but for the two attorneys generals that I worked with and for President Obama, who after Ferguson really took took it upon himself very personally to engage launching the 21st Century Policing Task Force, and so much more.
2: And just for our non-legal listeners, can you just walk us through the terms of art, pattern and practice, and consent decree?
1: Yeah, so um, in 1994, after the Rodney King beating and the unrest in Los Angeles, Congress passed a law that gave the Justice Department and the Civil Rights Division in particular the mandate to investigate systemic problems of unconstitutional policing in police departments. It is a tool that has been used very judiciously at the Justice Department in a country of 18,000 police departments to have an administration like the Obama administration investigate 25. You can see how judicious the tool was that we were using. But what uh, what this looks like is that um, uh, uh, no single incident would compel the Justice Department to open an investigation. It took usually um, patterns of unconstitutional policing issues coming to our attention, whether it was because community members were giving us data, whether it was because there were a series of high profile um, incidents. Uh, but the trigger would be there would be any number of triggers, and the Justice Department then would open an investigation and a team of lawyers and investigators at the civil rights division would then spend, uh, practically live in these cities uh, spending anywhere usually from about six to 12 months interviewing hundreds of community residents, hundreds of police officers combing through every document and record about their training manuals and records about stop searches and arrests um, Looking at accountability systems, supervision systems, uh, and really very kind of tailored to the problems in that local police department, and then would come up with a findings report. And the findings report would, um, you know, lay out the picture of uh, of what was found in this police department after this thorough investigation. And the Justice Department, if they made a found, finding of unconstitutional policing, um, would then work with the jurisdiction to negotiate a settlement agreement that was that would be filed with a federal court. That's called a consent decree. It would be filed with a federal court overseen by an independent monitor. And uh, the consent decrees typically last several years. Um, I would say on average, they're about five years. Uh, they really compel culture change, policy change, practice change, Uh, with an aim to make a police department have constitutional systems, have self-correcting mechanisms, and rebuild trust with their communities.
2: And can you just talk for a minute about the ways in which – I know we we don't have all day, but the ways in which the Jeff Sessions and now Bill Barr Justice Department have rolled back some of the reforms that you tried to effectuate on your watch? Yeah, where do I start? So um, I'll just say in a nutshell
1: that uh, the Trump administration— Uh, under uh, Attorney General Sessions and Barr have abdicated the Justice Department's responsibility in supporting and ensuring constitutional policing in communities in this country, not just through walking away from the tool that the Civil Rights Division has through this pattern and practice uh, investigation, jurisdiction, but actually on any number of fronts, Uh, They have not opened a single pattern and practice investigation into a police department except on one with a very narrow issue out of Springfield, Massachusetts, the issue I don't even remember. Um, It's a pretty staggering record of inaction. And um, through uh, rhetoric, they – well, I would say there were also other actions that they took. They largely dismantled the kind of collaborative reform – Program that was being operated by the community oriented policing services component at the Justice Department. Uh, they withdrew a lot of memos and guidances that had been that we had issued to support. Uh, community police trust and constitutional policing. And then I would say they, you know, Jeff Sessions on his way out after uh, Trump fired him, the last action that he did at the Justice Department was to slap a memo onto the Civil Rights Division that made it almost impossible for the division to obtain consent decrees, not just in the policing context, but across the board. And that was really a gutting of the most impactful tool that the Civil Rights Division has to correct systemic civil rights violations. Um, and so, and then you have the rhetoric. You had Bill Barr most recently on in a speech, I think just a couple of months ago, talking about how, you know, if you want to criticize the police, you may not receive police protection. That kind of rhetoric is so incredibly irresponsible and just heightens the kind of divide, polarization, us versus them, warrior versus guardian mentality. That uh, for so many years we were trying to overcome, not just at the Justice Department, but even among law enforcement leaders and community leaders that were seeking a different path forward.
2: So, so, Venita, I want to turn to George Floyd and to Breonna Taylor and to Eric Garner and Michael Brown and 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 uh, this. Extrajudicial police, you know, ending of uh, Black Lives didn't start this week in Minneapolis. Um, You published a piece in The Washington Post this week about what a federal investigation into Minneapolis would look like if it were done correctly. Can you just walk us through what you think needs to happen to kind of correct The damage that has been sort of engraved so deeply that it feels as though it's immutable. So,
1: let me break down the one area that I didn't talk about of what the Justice Department has in its tools is criminal accountability. Um, The Justice Department has the ability to prosecute police officers for violating federal criminal law, uh, but it has a very narrow single statute that it can use to do this which this this law requires the highest proving the highest criminal intent standard requires proving not only that the force that was used was unreasonable, but that uh, the officer involved knew that his or her act violated the law, but did it anyway. And it may sound like not a big deal, but actually the burden that that establishes for a federal prosecutor to prove is incredibly high. And so there have been a lot of high-profile cases where the Justice Department has um, not prosecuted because the evidence couldn't meet that threshold standard. I will say in this case that the facts uh, around Mr. Floyd's death, the multiple camera views in broad daylight, the three officers on his body, one on his neck for several minutes, the fact that he was already restrained in handcuffs, there was no physical provocation, saying that he can't breathe repeatedly in deep distress and other witnesses pleading with officers, all of that, and the fact that uh, his own chief said that this was never a trained maneuver, um, all of this would lead me to believe that This is actually a case that the feds could prosecute and could obtain a conviction in. And I can't say that with very much confidence about most cases. And that's a travesty in and of itself. I'm jumping probably ahead, but this is one of the reasons why for the leadership conference and for many, many uh, groups right now, uh, there's a call for Congress to actually give federal prosecutors a expanded charging option of being able to reach cases where the officer acted recklessly. And we've got to expand this jurisdiction. I want to go to a related issue around this, which is that, you know, for too long in this country, um, police officers have been able to act with impunity Uh, in killing black men and women, because the law, frankly, is just insufficient. Uh, And not only is the law insufficient, we've got problems around uh, whether district attorneys offices are independent enough from police departments, since police officers are their investigators. We've got problems with the limitations, for example, of, of the federal law for the Justice Department. Uh, but we also have implicit bias of jurors that infect the and make it very hard to obtain convictions. Uh, there have been instances where things have been caught on video, uh, and uh, juries just, despite the what the they see on the video and all the facts that are known, have not convicted. Like in the Philando Castile case. So there's a lot of layers of problems here, but criminal accountability. Um, while while so crucially important to restoring anyone's faith in the legal system, especially for Black communities and communities of color, while it's crucially important, it isn't sufficient to being able to address some of these really, you know, grave systemic issues that um, that need to be addressed, and that was that's why the the civil rights division has the pattern pra- practice jurisdiction, but ultimately. Um, I have really come to understand that the Justice Department's interventions and police reform is itself a limited strategy, because I actually do not believe that we can reform policing in America by just reforming the policies and practices and even the cultures in police departments. We have a problem of hypercriminalization in this country, not new, not started uh, in the last few years, but has been, we've been saddled with this, uh, you know, ever for the last 50 years, um, where we have criminalized a lot of different, uh, things, especially in communities of color where there's increased police presence, increased interactions between police and residents for things that would never happen in your neighborhood or frankly mine. And, we need to understand that that has been accompanied with a divestment in education and jobs and public transportation and housing and health care. And so the confluence of the pandemic of COVID-19, which has laid bare structural racism and inequity, and the confluence of structural racism in policing and Mr. Floyd's death, has come together in this way that has really kind of established the degree to which we aren't going to solve the problems of policing until we understand that we have over-invested in a criminalization infrastructure and under-invested in other kinds of investments that communities of color need so badly.
2: And Vanita, you started to dip into this, but but let's um, get it on the table. Can you explain just for listeners what the Leadership Conference is, how long it's been around? And uh, I mean, it's just an amazing collective of organizations. Can you sort of lay out the mandate?
1: The Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights is in its 70th year. We were founded in 1950 by Jewish and African-American labor leaders who came together really out of the theory that the fight for civil rights couldn't be won by one group alone, but needed to be waged in coalition. It started out, as you said, as a smaller collection of organizations that were really fighting for the Voting Rights Act. Uh, helped Dr. King organize the March on Washington in 1963. Every major piece of federal civil rights legislation has in some way been shepherded, crafted through the leadership conference. Uh, And over in recent times, we have now become a staff of over 100 people. We have over 220 national civil and human rights organizations. And we both push out actual uh, program, and we also s- kind of help bring together groups or a force multiplier to develop and sync up strategies across our organizations, across our communities, so we can be more effective and more strategic in specific campaigns to win. And it happened that because, probably, of my background, when I came into the leadership conference after stepping down from the Justice Department, I wanted to create a policing program that could, in the void of a justice department uh, that was really cared about these issues and cared about the communities um, most in contact with the police, that we could actually be a resource for continuing the conversation around police reform. And last year, we issued a Really extensive guide and toolkit that I was so proud this week. President Obama lifted it up himself, but a, a guide called "New Era of Public Safety" that dug into all of the research and best practices that came out of our consent decrees, the Justice Department consent decrees, the um, research out of the Justice Department, civil rights organizations, law enforcement. Uh, we had law enforcement vet it to progressive law enforcement. And it's really to take into the next level what the 21st Century Policing Task Force put together. And we have been working on these issues and are now in quick order after Mr. Floyd's death, um, brought together over 430 organizations along with an eight-point platform for what Congress needs to do immediately. There's a lot more work beyond these eight points immediately to take up things like banning chokeholds, creating a national registry of police misconduct so that officers who cycle in and out of law enforcement with long disciplinary records are actually detected um, in the hiring process, expanding the federal charging option to include a recklessness standard and the like. And so that's some of the work that we are able to do because we really do have that kind of ability to bring groups together around a particular agenda as we're fighting for justice in communities across the country.
2: Vanita, do you have the sense, I don't know if this is me being Pollyanna-ish, I, although I've never been accused of being Pollyanna-ish, but that that the conversation has slightly shifted away from the few bad apples narrative to systemic reform. I, I feel as though the number of police reform proposals that I'm hearing, sort of systemic reforms, like the ones you're talking about. I'm hearing, you know, defund the police altogether, renegotiate all police union contracts and all qualified immunity. I mean, I'm hearing big systemic, some of them possibly beyond your sense of, of what uh, you want to achieve. But but am I right that this feels as though there seems to be a public understanding that this is just not one or two racist cops?
1: I Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that even Ferguson helped trigger that. I think Black Lives Matter uh, really set the tenor for our conversation about some of the more structural, systemic issues. Uh, but I think what's happened is there are you know, these cycles over and over again of an outrageous case, a terrible case, a tragedy, followed by outrage, followed by reforms, but ones that um, don't stick. I mean, I will say Congress rarely takes up policing issues. Um, it's been many years since Congress has taken up a bill on policing. And so this is, you know, the, the notion of reaching for bigger solutions. Mr. Floyd's death was awful and terrible it. They uh, as awful as could be also, landing at a time, as I said, where the country is in a crisis, a massive economic recession, uh, a real sense of unequal opportunity that we will be saddled with for uh, a long time, uh, where, you know, amid this global pandemic, and this real, realization, even on the eve of an election, that we cannot be reaching for band aid solutions or tinkering at the edges, that we, there is no return to normal. Uh, that this incident has so galvanized the country at a time, and I mean, I don't think the reaction, the militarized reaction of the president has helped things at all, but it is forcing a much bigger conversation. We are One of our eight points, uh, Dahlia, since this is a, you know, some of the legal ones listening will understand this, is to end qualified immunity. Um, there is a real sense that there's been the law has protected officers from being from from accountability in myriad of ways and qualified immunity is one of them. But I also think there's a broader conversation to have. And when you look at city budgets, why such a high percentage of these budgets are focused on policing at the expense of housing and education and other positive investments in their communities. And I think that that is something that policymakers are really going to have to confront in a way that hasn't been confronted in a long time. And so you saw on Wednesday that Mayor Garcetti made an announcement that would reduce the LAPD budget and with the goal of reinvesting those saved dollars in health and education and other interventions in communities. And frankly, that isn't a conversation that was happening a few years ago, but there's a lot of demand for this now. And I think it's emanating out of a recognition that you not only have to reform policing on the inside of departments, and that's the systemic part that needs to happen, but also you have to address the kind of skewed priorities and distorted priorities and distorted public spending that we've had as a nation in communities of color for so long.
2: Vanita, I need to give you the chance to talk a little bit about the flip of this coin, which is, you know, we're seeing peaceful protesters have their masks yanked down and pepper sprayed just to make sure it works. We are seeing peaceful protesters, you know, assaulted with rubber bullets and tear gas that then we're told is not tear gas. At the same time, you have to be blind not to notice, you know, armed white militiamen. Walking down the streets of Fishtown, you know, taking selfies in Philadelphia, armed white militiamen taking over the Michigan State House and police standing by. And I think part of this conversation has to be that the police also tolerate an immense amount of lawlessness and violent and threatening behavior if it comes from white men with guns.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk of uh, you know those images that we all saw in Michigan outside of the state house um, with armed white militia, uh, you know, yelling at the police and there being no response whatsoever, versus the response to protesters here. Now, look, I you know there was there was uh, violence, there were property that was damaged and um, set on fire and. Um, and nobody is saying that that should be, you know, allowed or just kind of watched and witnessed. But the treatment of peaceful protesters uh, being treated this way with military uh, by, by with military force on the ground, um, with with this mishmash of federal agents that aren't wearing identification and uh, have no training in how to manage mass protests, this is scary. I mean, this is the 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 act of dispersing, you know, violently a crowd that was peacefully protesting outside of the church, this is the stuff that fascists do. And I have to say uh, you and I have talked about this over the years and, you know, watching the boiling of the frog and the melting of our democracy, I think that These images um, and, and what's happening right now is absolutely frightening against a backdrop of an administration that has attacked, you know, fundamental democratic norms and the rule of law repeatedly. We're going into an election cycle. We have been already, you know, as civil rights lawyers, really deeply concerned about the level of which voter suppression is being weaponized for partisan gain. Uh, we need to fight for a fair election. We're fighting disinformation on Facebook and their, you know, the company's own inaction in helping to promote the messages of incit- incitement of violence with the looters and shooters posts and the posts about, you know, um, uh, the the lying posts about how mail in ballots are illegal and the like. I mean, this is a really tense and scary time for the country and. We have to protect people and make sure that they are safe from harm. And I mean, the irony, as you said, rightfully in your opening, is that, you know, more and more people are being, you know, called to protest in this moment out of the reaction of the president and the attorney general in kind of militarizing the streets. Um, It's only doubling down on the underlying message that protesters are, are trying to get across. But I think that we have a lot of work to do now. And I know that it's easy to sit in despair, um, but I just, despair is not gonna save lives and despair is not gonna make change. And so now we have to honor what the protesters are doing, honor the anger we are feeling, honor the pain, especially in black communities right now, um, and make sure that we don't just go to the old solutions. It won't be enough. to just return to the Obama-era solutions that we were driving towards. We need to be bolder than that in this moment out of a recognition of how much work we have to do. Uh, But we've got to be action-oriented and demand action from our leaders that are in positions
2: of power to make change. Vanita, I'm so glad you talked about what I see as the fundamental horror of, you know, Bill Barr conscripting some, you know, military entity that answers to the Justice Department. Yeah, unclear that people have legible identification. It 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 feels different to me. Do you have some way of describing how you feel about? the former justice department that you left behind and what's happened i mean what do you is it fixable is this is this redeemable can we get it back the justice department with all of its norms and its courtesies and its kind of unwritten views of the world or is it forever broken uh,
1: no i'm i'm a civil rights advocate i have a deep and profound well of hope about these things i think that the abyss that they have fallen into is deeper than I could have possibly imagined, but clearly I had a failure of imagination when it came to this administration. Um, but I think it is rebuildable. I think it's going to be really hard. I think people's faith in government and the justice systems, legal systems, has been really corroded in profound ways. What I don't want, and we have seen too often, is that when there's an opportunity to rebuild, reinvest, uh, you know, deal with long-standing attacks on democratic norms and the like, there's this desire to pretend like the prior, you know, years didn't happen, and to try to retain, return to some quaint sense of normal. And I think there's going to need to be some bold steps that we take as a country um, in order to actually do the kind of rebuilding that will be required in the justice department. When I think about the way the justice department is organized um, and the ways in which the justice department kind of tries to approach policing or the ways in which the justice department has dealt with precedent, all of so many of these norms has been torn down in this administration and it's going to require some, I think, creative and bold thinking to not just try to return to like the pre Trump days, but to try to now we've seen the, what the failure of our imagination can yield. What do we do to shore up our institutions, our democratic norms, and to rush to protect those who've been most vulnerable because of the attacks? in this administration. These are not abstract principles just that we're fighting for. These, these attacks have had real impact in real communities. And so being able to bring that kind of thinking uh, and courage, because a lot of us, when you work in institutions, you become kind of an institutionalist. Being able to see outside of the bounds of what we thought was possible in order to not return to this place, I think is going to be really important.
2: Vanita, it's really important what you're saying. It's something I know you live. I've been at enough of your events that I know this is the work that you, long before uh, we got to This Week in America, that you've been really thinking about. You've given me, at least, and I hope our listeners, just a ton To think about, Uh, Vanita Gupta served in the Justice Department as head of the Civil Rights Division. One of her focuses there was on racialized policing. She is now the president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Vanita, like I said, I know you're crazy busy, but thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Dahlia. I'm really glad I could do it and be on with you.
2: And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your thoughts and your feedback and your support. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we will be back with another episode of Amicus In two short weeks, until then, hang on in there and we will do it.
0: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?